Hello, everyone. Today, we have two big sci-fi anniversaries uh, that all released on the exact same day back in 1982. The first one we're going to be talking about is The Thing. Uh, it was a commission podcast by Sean. Actually, both of these were commission podcasts by Sean, Sean Ray. Uh, old school bald new fan. Uh, of course, the thing directed by John Carpenter. The thing, the thing about both of these podcasts that we're re-releasing today, Jim, because they're both these podcasts are both roughly five years old. You know, a lot of people probably haven't uh, known that we did these. Uh, some of the older archive stuff is is hard to access, so we like to re-release it on these anniversaries. The thing that that really stuck out, and that the, the one of the reasons I really appreciate commission podcast is I would have never gone back and probably watched the thing. Otherwise, like why would I watch a 40 year old horror movie? You know, it's like, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's hallmark was practical effects, which in my mind is shitty rubber stop motion animation, Hmm. Harry Housen skeletons and this voyages of Sinbad and whatnot. Like, uh, and, and I would have never thought that something that old could both, scare me and provoke some genuine thought you know uh like why i was wrong yeah yeah i i I had seen this movie before right so i knew the reputation and that kind of blows my mind to hear you say like yeah why would i go back and watch this stupid old thing uh when i know this is one of like the the high watermarks of technology when it comes to uh physical effects right Right. But you could say the thing about King Kong. Like that was landmark animation for its day. And if you sure, go back sure. and watch the 1933 King Kong, it's kind of a big piece of shit. Like, I mean, I mean, it, it's <laughs> like, like, I, you know, we, we can quibble over, you know, putting yourself in. But but no, nah, I mean, it looks like a stop motion monkey and a stop motion dinosaur mm-hmm. and they're slamming together in some claymation studio. Uh, this thing holds up. Like, I think that, uh, oh, yeah. like you said, this is the pinnacle of practical effects. Like, you can tell some of it is fake, but it looks convincing. And some of the stuff mm-hmm. is just amazing. Oh, yeah. So, this also led me to become more of a John... Well, no, actually made me become a John Carpenter fan because uh, I went out and checked out things like the original Halloween, uh, the escape from New York and L.A., some other things that he's kind of justifiably famous for, and... Uh, uh, coming to a new appreciation of the man. He does his own thing, and he's a, he's, he's oh, got yeah. a way with a soundtrack, too. Yep, sure does. Uh, other thing I was not prepared for, and I think I even missed it, because I, if I recall correctly, you called it out to me, and I, I've, I've seen this movie three or four times since, because I watched it. Uh, Ceci had never seen it, so we watched it together. Then I, we watched the American sequel that has to do with, uh, the, I think it's the Norwegian base that the dog runs from in the beginning of the movie, which is not bad. And then I watched it again to compare uh, the hat, the fucking hat that Kurt Russell wears in this movie. Yeah. What? What the fuck, man? It's a good <laughs> thing his his, his he's got a nice ass because that uh, that hat really takes away from the uh, the other part of the package. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything to say for this the fortieth anniversary of uh, the thing before we let uh, five year uh, uh, in the past Aaron and Jim take it away? I mean, I'd say a lot of stuff about it in the actual podcast, which we're about to get to. But this is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Uh, I'm a big sucker for things like The Fly um, and this, which have those practical effects that really just are disgusting. The Cronenberg-esque body horror stuff is fantastic. So I guess enjoy the podcast. 
Yeah, enjoy these two. Uh, both uh, debuted back in June of 1982. Uh, and, and and here's the first one, The Thing. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, everybody. We are back with another commission podcast, this time by prolific commissioner Sean Ray, uh, especially dominating the late the late commissions, the, la- the last of the classic commissions. Uh, he wanted us to watch 1982's The Thing. Science fiction horror film directed by John Carpenter, starring Kurt Russell and a ton of character actors that you will recognize, including Wilford Brimley and Keith David as Blair and Childs, respectively. Um, This is the first time I've actually seen this movie. Oh, man. Which I was worried because I know that this I've I've heard this is a well-regarded science fiction horror film. Uh, and I was worried that with the 1982 that it was going to be hokey and <laughs> and unconvincing and and kind of fakey. Um, and I'm not and, and that that wasn't an unwarranted opinion, but I found that it didn't. I, I had no trouble being immersed into the film and getting caught up with it and and buying its premise and getting sucked into the the situation. Which is briefly, if you haven't seen. Uh, the thing uh, spoilers for a 40 year old movie uh, it, it involves Americans at an Antarctic research base uh, who think they become infected by some alien thing that can genetically copy them and then hide amongst them and, and kill and kill them. And if it uh-huh. gets out, it can infect the entire world and they're cut off by a storm and various disasters and that's to, to solve this. It's like it's like the, the predator only cold instead of hot. Uh, what the spoilers for the, the movie th- throughout here? Uh, uh-huh. Jim, what's what's your opinion? Uh I mean, in my opinion, this is one of the all-time great horror films. Uh, and if this were just simply a vehicle, I, I don't know the names of the people who worked on the practical effects in this movie, but if it were simply a vehicle for their practical effects work, I think it would be good enough. The fact that it is actually a really interesting film in and of itself uh, just puts it over the top as mm-hmm. a true classic for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I was amazed at how well this movie held up and the fact that, you know, there are definitely you can tell that these are practical effects, but I don't think it takes it away. It's just more of like, wow, they were able to do this. Like I was right. um, I was really concerned with how like, man, how did they do this? St- like I, I like this, like almost the stop motion of these tentacles whipping around uh-huh. uh, because but uh, but it looked way more fluid than that. Um, and I found yeah. out that what they did is they extended the tentacles and then retract them. And then played okay. it in reverse, so it was all real physics whipping things around, and re- but it just happened in reverse. And I'm like, what a clever fucking effect! Yeah. And it absolutely survived. Some of the shit, some of the the the, the mutations this thing comes from, like <laughs> it's so the guys up. from ID Software absolutely sh- sh- owe John Carpenter money. 
Yeah, from their their demon designs and stuff. And like this, I see as being so influential for so much creature design in mm-hmm. the last thirty years. It's on. Fucking believable. I know Sam Winston was one of the. Uh, he didn't. He. I heard he worked on it, but didn't want to like steal thunder from the the main guy who worked on it. Right. I'm trying to find that information. But yeah, but, like, thing, but yeah, he like you know because he helped out a little bit scenes here and there, but he didn't want to take a you know didn't didn't want to oversee the main special effects guy. Yeah. Um, but I mean the the effects are so good. I, I love practical effects to begin with. Right. Because I I think they just feel. Like, even if they don't look perhaps as realistic as CG effects can look nowadays, Uh they feel more realistic to me. Like, you know, that's a thing that people could look at and people could interact with on set. Yeah. Uh, And to me, I'm always more impressed by that. But the the effects work is so damn good that I I look at it and I I have that question. Like, how the hell did they do this? Mm -hmm. How the hell did they get this alien to halfway integrate with this human body and flail around the room for a good minute and a half Mm. without having actual human beings hurt during the process. Yeah. I I honestly couldn't tell you how they pulled off the effects they did. Some of the stunts, some of the best effects, some of the stunts like borderline unsafe, like some of that Uh shit with the flamethrowers. And like, I was like, wow, how in the world did they do that? But like, Uh there's a lot of times where they just set a stunt guy on fire and like (laughs) it's, it's, it's insane. Uh, I just looked up. It's Rob Botton. Okay. Uh, who Rob is this, Bodden or maybe it's Bowden. Uh, it's the special effects uh, and uh, uh, and makeup supervisor and designer. So I, I mean, sure, surely they had to win some kind of effects award for this movie because well, it's so night and day, like above anything else I've seen. So here's the thing <laughs> about the thing, which I found shocking. Hmm. This was not highly thought of or regarded and was not exactly a box office bomb, but was seen as a disappointment that set John Carpenter's career back probably a decade. Uh, yeah, that's shocking because I think it's a really sound. It's a really well constructed film. It's the rare film where almost everyone has come around. Like ten, fifteen years after it debuted, people are like, you know, the the thing is actually pretty incredible. And yeah. I was amazed at like how well it held up from just a filmmaking perspective. Like it yep. looks great. The character designs, like Kurt Russell's costuming, how he cha- he's, he changes from like essentially a Bush helicopter pilot to an action hero. He's got like dynamite strapped to his chest, and he's uh-huh. uh, he just looks bat and like with his like like ice climbing pickaxe it's very and uh like just as iconic as ash from the evil dead sure but like it it never feels like you know he's putting on some kind of ridiculous costume it's just like oh these are the things he's done you know like i kind of want like a mcfarland figure of of mccready (laughs) with pickaxe in one hand and flamethrower in the other that'd be sweet that would be really cool to have on your mantle right and i think that's the number one thing that i like about this movie is that every plot development feels like a natural next move you know it's it's this chess game that they're playing against this alien which fine that's fucking cliched whatever but every decision they make every test they decide would probably work is gonna work right it it works nobody comes up with a stupid idea that obviously wouldn't work and they spend 10 minutes on it and it doesn't work Everything they think of, these are very smart people. They're yeah. scientists in a research station. Right. Everything they think of works, and it's just a matter of this psychological game between the thing and the humans. And 
it just feels so natural. Like the plot progresses so naturally. Right. I, I never step back and go, oh, this is a movie and they're just trying to get me from this point to this point. And the setting's cool because it's like as close as you can get to like an alien world by and still be here on Earth because they're isolated. Yeah. There's no immediate rescue in, on hand. The environment itself will kill you mm-hmm. if you don't have like support and shelter. Um, you know, it, it's these these uh, Antarctic research bases are famous for being like these psychological pressure cookers. Yeah. Like, because like in the winter you are left alone for six days in utter darkness. You don't get to see the sun for six months. And it's so cold. Like the, the average daytime temperature is negative 60. Yeah. And the night it gets to negative 80 to 90. That's average. And it's just, just, just unrelenting cold. You can't. And, and like, that's the situation you throw this insanely paranoid situation onto. Mm-hmm. And it's just great. It's great. Um, yeah, I, I, the movie does not play with cheap tricks. That's that's the number one thing I like. You know, right. the, the ideas are hit upon. The logic of them is sound. They work. It's just this battle. Yeah, and it's like there's, there's no jump scares. It's just like, it's behold, like one, yeah. behold the horror of what's going on. Behold yeah. this creature transforming and, and what up. it's going to do. And I kept I kept finding myself out loud saying oh my fucking god yeah. this is uh, this is vulgar this yeah. is obscene and yeah. it's horrifying and what's again, happening i i fully recognized it was fake uh-huh but it's still just the it's kind of like um like reading a book lets your imagination go wild just the implication of what's going on to these people and what they're being transformed into and like the horror of being like i kept on thinking like they repeat the scenario over and over again like being a dog in a kennel that's locked in with this thing or Mm -hmm. being a man that is handcuffed to this thing and the only way to kill it's a flamethrower right like there's just a lot of just like jesus christ this is fucking crazy like yeah. to see someone torn apart in front of your eyes and you're handcuffed to this thing and the guy with the flamethrower number one having having trouble with it uh-huh. number two <laughs> I'm I'm handcuffed to this thing that's gonna get flamethrowered yeah it's uh, fucked up yeah it's and, and that all being kind of a microcosm of the larger thing which is twofold you know they're stuck in this research station with it mm-hmm. they can't go anywhere mm-hmm. uh, and also we're stuck on this planet with it right and if it gets out it has like uh, I think Sean says it was three years is the calculation uh-huh. before all of humanity is, is taken over by this thing. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's very much a, like you're trapped in here with it kind of thing. All right. Before we get too much further, I want to get Sean Ray's comments and he's got then, uh, as is want, he's got a, a trivia section and some final thoughts for us. Some final questions. Okay. Uh, Sean says, John Carpenter is one of my favorite directors because his films are always fun. None of his films would be AFI top 100 material, but every time one of his films begin and I hear one of the soundtracks kick in a huge grin forms upon my face mm-hmm. like i gotta say i don't think much of the original halloween but fucking killer soundtrack i mean it's the michael myers theme is just as iconic as star wars yes as iconic as indiana yes. jones yes yeah it's amazing um i love the aspect of fate or chance in his movies the thing lands on earth during the last ice age in antarctica a place where nothing lives it's frightening to think if it landed anywhere else on our planet every leaving creature would already have been the thing this movie and my previous commission blade runner opened the exact same day in 1982 both were box office oh. bombs but D- dude yeah, we'll talk about this. Keep, keep going, but 
very quickly we need to come back to this idea of opening on the same day but both would later become huge cult classics uh, the atmosphere and attention of the film are great even after watching the film God knows how many times at least 30 I still don't know exactly who or when any one character is the thing these characters probably know each other so well because they've been locked up together for God knows how long but now they can't trust each other the paranoia introduced in this film is extremely well done yeah I mean that uh, is the movie to me like okay. the, this psychological who is the creature who is the thing who isn't the thing how do we tell yeah this is uh, a social deduction game yeah. where the penalty is gruesome death yeah and that's and potentially the the entire planet being yeah yeah, yeah. By it. yeah and I, that's the other thing is like you can see some men like really balk at the eye like uh, in the last act of the movie, about half of the men are on board with the idea that we're going to die killing this thing, mm-hmm. and half of them are not. Yeah, and that even so that even when you think you're on the same team, you've still got that. And yeah, like I wish I knew a little bit about what exactly infected you, like just merely touching the blood, or does it have to bite mm-hmm. you? Because but having those rules be unknown and how the hell would these guys like, you can't conduct conduct double blind tests. Like there, it feels very early goings of a zombie apocalypse where like, you're not sure if it's a scratch or a bite or yeah. you know what, um, like not knowing the rules kind of makes it even scarier. It does. Yeah. Uh, you could also say that that's maybe like the confusion, the not knowing who is the thing when, uh, could be a negative uh, against this movie, but I, I guess I, I don't view it that way. I yeah, view it more from the horror aspect. I, of it. I feel like you could, that's only a criticism if you feel like the creator is using it to jerk you around. Yeah. And I never thought like there wasn't some third act like, Oh, we know it's weakness is sonic wave. So if we rig up our station's radio, it'll fuck it up. Like n- there was never yeah. like, just because the rules are poorly defined, it wasn't used of like, aha, deus ex machina. It's just like, well, it's an alien thing and you're cut off from, you've got one and a half scientists, one and a half doctors and that's it. Uh-huh. You that that's that's what you've got to solve this problem. A radio operator and you know, it's it's uh it, it, it's real good. And the fact that these guys are all like world-class character actors. Yeah. Like, I've sure. seen every single one of them, except for maybe windows and a lot of other different stuff. Um, and I, yeah, just, and they're all like, you know, I think that's one of the charms of Kurt Russell and he's, you know, we'll talk about his place in the badass pantheon, but he's kind of a Bruce, a little bit, he's, he's a Bruce Willis type in that he mm-hmm. is an everyman. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when he kind of takes it upon himself to take over the station and start giving orders, he's not like the natural, I don't think he, he doesn't come across as the natural leader. In fact, maybe he's not even the most well-liked person. Mm-hmm. He's the type of dude that will ruin a computer because a chess computer program beats him. <laughs> right. Like, dude, how many, these, how many of these Apple twos do we got in this fucking research station just yeah. because the computer beats you? You're going to, the hell's wrong with you, man? Yeah, it was. Uh, I thought that was pretty hilarious, actually. Yeah, yeah. In that boy, you that was uncalled for kind of way. Also, one of the, the like that's the only woman character in the entire movie is that chess computer's voice, and he and kills I, it. Yeah, and I get and he kills it, and it's, and it's John Carpenter's <laughs> wife. There's all kinds oh, of okay layers of that onion you could you could uh, you could peel back. Uh, I do I do like though talk, talking about how muddy the plot could get. Mm-hmm. A couple of times they ground it. You know, they br- they bring it back in. So you've got this idea of the thing taking over everybody and they don't know who it is and then at some point it 
they, they they do the test and they put down all of the things that they know about, right? Mm-hmm. All of the things within the research station itself. And so there's only one possibility left. Mm-hmm. And that one possibility is that it's the doctor. Right. Uh, and so, and he's cordoned off into the shack. So, you know, okay, it's become much simpler now, right? We just have to hunt down this one thing. The, the objective is very clear again. Uh, and I feel like without that, it could have easily spiraled out of control right. with the guessing game. Right. Uh, and so kinda, I thought that was really smart. And it kind of does, because at the end, like, they set up an engineered situation where the thing could still be alive. Well, that, that's that's fine at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you want that question at the end. That's the thing that kind of makes the ending of the movie for me. But, yeah, but no, it, get, you didn't want that the entire time, right? Apparently, they forced a happy ending on it, and it didn't. they forced two different types of happy endings where it was made clear that Kurt Russell survived and he wasn't infected. Hmm. And they didn't test well, so they let John Carpenter have it his way, and he did the you know very ambiguous, yeah. dark... Um, you know, fatalistic, nihilistic ending. Uh huh. All those things. Yeah, I like it. Um, I guess like I kind of wish. Well, I mean, that's why Kurt. Because like, like I, the only way it would been more satisfying for me is if Kurt Russell had killed himself and Keith David. Because I think I, I do that's, feel like that's that's the natural outcome there, right? That's what you have. Only if you really believe this is an existential threat to humanity, then yeah. you got you, you almost have to. There's the argument that he simply became tired of fighting at that point, right? But still, and well, I mean, there's there's everyone only has a, a limit. Yeah, everyone's got their limits. There's only a certain point you can push people to before they will just throw their hat in. And let me talk about that hat that Kurt Russell would be throwing in. Mm-hmm. Uh what the fuck is that? What the fuck is this gigantic, cumbersome cowboy thing that he's wearing on his head? I mean, he goes kind of like more hoodie later on. I mean, he could wear it as a hoodie, yeah. <laughs> the, the hat. You Surely you noticed the hat. No, I really didn't. Holy I don't know what hat you're shit. talking about. The hat is so big. What hat? His cowboy hat. He has a cowboy hat. Oh the God. only wear it like Are you a no, seriously. With me? No, because when I think when I close my eyes and see him, I see him like my with the hair. Yeah, with the big no, flowing. like my the iconic look for him is like with his like you know he's got the parka on with his hoodie pulled tight and it's just like in his face peeking out. And with his goggles, like I, uh, I, I, maybe you mistook his enormous hat for a, a hood. Was that no? He's wearing a hoodie throughout the movie. A gray hoodie pulled over his head. I'm not uh, fucking with you. I don't. Maybe during the storm scenes, but he starts out in a cowboy hat, and it's it's kind of the the iconic look of Kurt Russell's character in this. Yeah, so he's also got Mc, kind of the feathered hair of like uh, Ashton Kutcher from uh, the '70s show. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but I, yeah, I don't remember the cowboy hat. Wow, that's shocking. This is the only first time I've seen it though. Yeah, and I was looking at because that's the thing is like I didn't know what to expect. I actually I didn't know what to expect. I know that this is renowned for being. It's, I knew it's it's practical effects, and I've been around the internet long enough that I've seen in isolation. Yeah, like pic- still pictures of some of these creatures. Um, and I knew it was like a very psychological kind of like pressure cooker situation, but I was very shocked that the first scene was essentially a flying saucer. Like, I, I'm I like, actually didn't I'm remember like, that either. Yeah. Wow. They're just laying. I thought that this was like, they, you know, and I kind of wonder if that wasn't a mistake. Like maybe that definitely said that it was an alien thing. I guess that they later dig up the saucer, but you might've left worst, that for then. Right. 
Hmm. You you might you might leave that yeah, for the for middle of the movie discovery. discovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love these kind of movies. These are right up my alley. The Alien, the Event Horizon. You know, the movies where they go in and they say, "What the fuck is happening here?" Yeah, they 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 go into a situation that is unknown, uh, and they have to figure it out. Those are those are some of my favorite movies. And well, this, and this so, does it so well because it starts off with this helicopter chasing a yeah. dog in the middle of the Arctic. I was shooting at a dog. Why yeah, the fuck and are you I was, doing and this? Then, Terribly too, might I add. Yeah, right, like, right. I mean, I get it's, it's a moving shooting. target, it's a moving, but you got a scope and a semi-automatic sniper rifle. Yeah. Like, get the job done. They're man. research scientists, you know. They're, they're not yeah, marksmen. Yeah, uh, but, but it, it builds this very like, what is going on here? It really feeling does. It really does. That is right up my alley. Yeah, because I'm like, why are they hunting a wolf? And then like, why the fuck this wolf in particular? And then it turns out it's a dog, and you know, I thought that was there was a there there is a bit of um. There is it, it's it's funny because this is a repeating thing, right? Uh, the Norwegians fought their battle at the base, and I guess there's a prequel in 2011 that was essentially telling the Norwegian side of. Have you seen that one? I haven't. People hated that. Really, I haven't seen it because I I saw some of the creature effect works just isolated on YouTube, and it looked fucking amazing. Huh. So like, I kind of want to see that, and like, it's essentially a, the prequel. It ends where this movie begins. Okay, but I thought there was a ni- nice symmetry from like the last few or Norwegians mishandling the explosive that killed them all. Like within this movie, where there was a similar kind of like mishandling of explosives, and like suddenly Kurt Russell's got to find the thing and fling it. He was slightly more successful than Nor- Norwegian. Yeah, but I, I did like the symmetry of like the horror of realizing that. My God, look at this base. Look at this Norwegian, ruined Norwegian base. Mm-hmm. And all of this is going to play out on the American side, too. So much so that, in fact, they shot the Norwegian base after they had shot everything yeah. on the American base. Right. And they used the same set. Right, right. The destroyed set it's, as the Norwegian base it, in the It saved intro. like a quarter million dollars to do that, I too, mean, it's so. a really good idea. Smart. Because you don't know until the end of the movie that that's yeah, true. Yeah, like a and Russian then, ice base, Norwegian ice base. I mean, they're all going to be geodesic yeah. domes and bivouacs and... right. You know, I actually did this. This inspired me to do some more research on the Antarctic, the current technology in the Antarctic uh, bases, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the the main one. I forget what it's called. The you know starts with an R and first name R, last name M. Um, Menudo. It's the Ralph Menudo, the Menudo base yep. uh, at the Antarctica that they've rebuilt that so many times because essentially three feet of snow accumulate every single year and this old bases just eventually get buried. <laughs> what the fuck? Um, that this new one is designed with aerodynamic principles to like use uh, an, a, a scouring effect. So like it's 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 first of all, it's on legs. It's on stilts. Okay. And it funnels the snow, the, the wind underneath it. So it blows that snow away and they can raise and lower the whole entire base to keep it above the snow level because they got tired of like rebuilding it every 15 just, years. It go, seems like go under the snow. Subterranean go, go, base. Go, go sub sub snow Aryan. Yeah. Sure. Snub sub snow. Yeah. I, I don't know why that. That I mean, surely there's a good reason for that that hasn't occurred. I mean, the hatch would probably get buried a huh. lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have to like keep it, but then you just have to clear the hatch. That's yeah. not so hard. But maybe like once the hatch gets to be 300 feet, a tunnel, like you know, you get a bad <laughs> right. snowstorm, and then like, oh shit. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's like it's it's or amazing. Snowed in maybe, and still only like they're as big as the base and fancies the base has gotten because it's a very important site for I guess uh, re- um, astronomy and yeah, um, all, all this other things. The conditions are very dry. 
uh, no light pollution, no light pollution at all. <laughs> Plus you get, you know, you get, you get six months where you can do observations all the time because the sun's not in. Right. Um, there's still only 50 people to live there in the, in average winter. And, and they That's start cool. off every, once the last transport ship, la, uh, leaves, they have a movie festival night where they watch the 1950s version of this movie. Oh my God. The thing and <laughs> the sequel to the thing. <laughs> Why as a would triple you do header. that? <laughs> Because I think it takes an odd duck to do that for to sure. volunteer, yeah. and like that's the kind of like, oh, this is what we're in for, you know? Like, just get that out of your system. Sounds like fun, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought so too. I thought so too. Um, just shoot the dogs. If if dogs come running up to your yeah, shoot all to dogs. your base. Just shoot the dogs. Shoot the Norwegians. Yep, you'll be good. Um, what? So I I uh, oh, let me go back to the yeah, this, I was gonna this ask idea you, of being released on the same day as Blade Runner. So that's kind of an amazing coincidence to me that two classic movies were launched, you know, on the same released on the same day. Yeah. Uh, June of 1982 was a fucking ridiculous month. I looked it up on, on a website loaded, huh? For release days. Uh, so the 25th, the thing and blade runner both came out, Mm -hmm. uh, on the 4th of June earlier that month, poltergeist came out. Wow. And Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan wow. came out. And then on the 11th, E.T. came out. Wow. That is one of the most loaded classic months I can think of. Yeah, everyone's one of someone that says we're living in a golden age of science fiction fantasy. I'm like... I don't know. Maybe we're starting to catch up, but yeah, I felt like as a kid, there was a lot more science fiction fantasy than there is now. Even, I mean, you know, accepting like the expanse and game of Thrones, which are like the heights, the highest of the highs, but like, the, you know, maybe the average quality is going up, but I don't certainly don't think the quantity, like, I don't feel like I'm getting enough science fiction fantasy in my life. Yeah. I, I know mean, you especially, shit about fantasy, you but know, science stuff fiction. that's going to be classics mm-hmm. like that. And I know these weren't instant classics, but a lot of them were though. E.T. was a e. was, yeah. beater right from the beginning. Uh, and I think Star Trek two certainly was, was the, the fans commercial success. Yeah. Instantly. Do you, can you, cause I was just trying to think like, when's the last time we had a movie like the thing where it came out and it takes a decade, decade and a half to be considered a classic. And like, I can't think hmm. of any, like the Matrix, it'd be like almost if the Matrix, if no one watched the Matrix when it came out, and then 15 years later, people are like, you know what, this is a pretty fucking amazing film. Yeah, the slow burn movies, I know they happen. I mean, uh, there's some things that I'm personally, like like, like Pontypool, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, I feel like that's at best a cult classic. That's not exploded as like, oh, this is an important film that everybody should have seen. Yeah, I'm thinking like stuff from the early 2000s that is now classic that wasn't at the time. Yeah, I, don't know. I can't think of any off the top of my like, head. Especially sure with this, exist. where this is talked about as like it went from Roger Ebert gave this two and a half stars. Oh God! Uh, and said that the special effects were amazing, but the characters were flat and the situations were not plausible. Like to go from that to like huh. this is widely regarded as the finest science fiction horror film of all time. That's an amazing turnaround that doesn't often happen. Yeah, I guess I just flat out disagree with Ebert on this. Oh yeah, because uh, I don't, I don't think the scenarios are implausible at all. Right. I mean, and, and if you grant that an alien comes down from space, then everything else follows. In my opinion, I will say that this exposes one of um, Ebert's biases, where like he did seem to be pretty uh, squeamish when it came to like hardcore violence and just gore. Mm, yeah. And like I can only imagine what this was like watching back in the day, because like I was repulsed and like. 
uh-huh. tense when these things were happening because the camera just like fucking lingered on this shit and like yeah. things just kept just when you thought things couldn't get worse things got worse you know no and that's the thing I love too it starts off with this horribly disfigured monster of a human being yeah. at the Norwegian base right? right that they bring back to their base right yeah, I feel like in most movies that would be the climax of their gore and, right. and their horror, their their body horror, right? right. Like the fly. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of equivalent yeah. to what the fly ends yeah, at. Yeah, Jeff right? Goldblum steps out of the booth and it's like, Jesus fucking Christ, <laughs> right. look at that thing. But you get the Jesus fucking Christ at the beginning and that's just where this movie starts. Yes. And then from there it goes to places that I can't think of any other movie that goes there. My, when, when that dude's head pulled itself off of its body, <laughs> sprouted spider legs. legs and upside down. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, like the guys that did doom, the guys that did half life, that like mouth yeah, in the yeah, middle yeah. of its chest cavity. That's like a total John Carpenter, the thing like these guys all owe enormous debt to this movie because it kind of reimagined what a movie monster could be. Like, sure. like, yeah, it's not you know, human, you know, this wasn't like, uh, this didn't look like, I mean, I guess Ridley Scott gets that a little bit too. Like the, like, you know, the, the gets away from like just a guy in a suit. Yeah. Like, like alien, alien, yeah. alien, alien could be anything. Yeah. Alien could be something that takes you over and rewrites your DNA. Like, and that's like even the expanse, like talking about great stuff. It absolutely owes a huge debt to the thing, mm-hmm. uh, with its protomolecule, uh, sh- shit. So, yeah, I don't um I I don't know I don't know how to talk about this film in like particulars because uh, again I only saw it once and it was it was kind of a hell of a thing um, and I spent a lot of time like researching Antarctic research stations rather than the movie itself uh, especially since okay. Sean Ray's got a lot of like uh, trivia about it already yeah um, I will say that like the other thing about this film is the lighting and costuming like I felt the final sequence in a generator room where everything is like bathed in this blood red light mm-hmm. was such a cool, like final boss level. Like Wilford Brimley was the real final boss. He was the biggest, most monstrous thing. It was underneath the, th- the research station. Almost all the other humans were dead by this point. Like, and the other thing is like, uh, like uh, I'm a little bit encouraged because I was, I wrote down in my notes, like at the beginning of the third act, like I, I'm having trouble keeping track of who could and could not be the thing. Right. And when they became the thing. And, um, I guess like that's a feature of the film that like it it is, it leaves a lot of things ambiguous. Like there's a couple of scenes where, you know, yep. Like this is what happened, but half of the infections are kind of like surprising. In fact, they said in that final like blood test scene, which I think is the best one. That's like one of the most tense, amazing things in the film. Yeah. They fake you out. Cause you like, I had thought that the, the base commander was the, the alien the whole time. Uh And it turned out like, and that was one of the biggest jump scares I've ever got (laughs) Right, because he's like, yeah, we'll leave you the last. And I'm like, Oh, this is going to be a slow buildup of tension. (laughs) Holy shit. What went on that blood? Oh my God. Now they have to fight the creature and And everybody's and the flamethrower's not working, right. and everyone's still tied to... Yeah, it was a fucking event, man. Yeah, that was amazing. I was crawling out of my scene. skin in that scene. Uh-huh. Um, and, and then, like I said, everything narrows back in from there, right? You kind of yeah. you kind of reset the board right. and say, okay, now we know. Now we know yeah, who's yeah. who. Yeah. Let's go fight the one we know could be. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's great. It's great. I, I do think... Um, the 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 doctor who's who's out in the shack most of the thing Wilford right Brimley, yeah yeah I I really like how 
they portray this alien as, you know, mimicking human beings and kind of, you know, taking over their personality and, and understanding, you know, yeah, who it, they are. It can make a perfect copy, which at first I thought right. meant physical, but like you could like, it'd be mute or something. Yeah. But no, it like, it's everything. It's, yeah. it's your knowledge. It's, it's everything, but it also retains some of what it is, right? Because mm-hmm. you see that Blair, and I think this is really a small point, but a really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, is that Blair builds a spaceship or not a spaceship, but a, a flying vehicle in the form that the thing understands yes. like the saucer kind of thing that we see at the beginning yeah, of the no. movie. Yeah. Because Wilford Brimley, the doctor doesn't have any knowledge of how to build Hell something no. right. that would fly him out of there. Right. So yeah. it goes, it falls back on the knowledge of the thing. It's almost like the, it's like uh, the thing is its own intelligence, but it uses what it's absorbed as like meat puppets. Yeah. Is what I, what yeah. I, I felt like. And, and, and you can kind of see that at the end when it turns into kind of everything at once. You yeah. Know, it turns yeah. into there's, a, there's a person a dog, and a dog a per- and yeah, then yeah. part of the thing. And yeah, that's what yeah. it also, I kept on thinking of like the echo, like the alpha, that was like an alpha and omega scene. Cause I wrote, wrote that in my notes is because like, you just like, you had the mishandling of explosives, but you also had the fusion of the canine threat and the human, like it was, it was all like tied together in a nice little bow in that final scene. You know what? I think, Phantoms. The, have you seen the movie The Phant- Phantoms with Ben Affleck? It's based on a Dean Koontz novel. No. Uh, it kind of owes a lot to this as well. It has some kind of amorphous, ancient alien creature that lives underground uh, and is kind of coming up through this town. And he goes and has to deal with that. Yeah, and it can also, take shapes. I, the other thing is, like, I thought that the thing was like, um, like an explicitly Lovecraftian tale, um, but apparently. Uh, it's not like it definitely has like cosmic hmm. horror and like things beyond human understanding yeah. and like the sites. But like, I thought like, like I, in my research, I would read that John Carpenter is like, I'm a big Lovecraft fan and I like this cosmic horror stuff, but apparently no, this is a, you know, based on, based on a, a tale. Like I said, this is, I'm, I'm trying not to get into trivia because Sean Ray did, a, has got a bunch of it. Um, yeah. And you've already like stepped on two of the things, so well. Uh, that's risk, the that's what you pay the money for. Uh, at risk of stepping on another, do you? What do you think of McCready's nuclear option here? You know, at one point he decides, look, none of us are going to make it out of here. Uh, I think it's when the generator goes down. Mm-hmm. He says, none of us are going to make it out of here. We need to we need to drive this thing out and kill it with fire. Right. Um, and he just sets about blowing up the entire station. I. I feel like they should have held that moment back just a tiny bit longer hmm. because what they do is they go, Oh shit. The generators are down. Yeah. Uh, we can't we'll never survive. Mm-hmm. Now what they don't know yet is that the generator is gone, right? The generator is fucking, mm-hmm. there's no way of repairing it. Right. They could have repaired it potentially. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why they gave up so quickly. Oh, generator's down. It must be completely destroyed. We'll never repair it. We're all going to die. That seems like a leap. I think they could have moved that, that idea of, okay, we're just going to go all out trying to kill it. Cause we're doomed to after they discover the missing generator. Interesting. My counterpoint on that is I, I had no trouble buying it because, in fact, I was a little exasperated that they were still in saving our skins mode once they found out that, like, this thing is an existential threat of all humanity. Like, I'd like to think that I'm the hmm. type of person that, I mean, it'd be sad. I don't know because I was actually thinking that, like, what would it be like to knowledge that, well, okay, I'm giving up my hope for life and now I'm now living for, like, 
humanity at large uh-huh. and my individual life doesn't matter like like the, the rationally grapple with that but um i just took it as a matter of granted that like there's no way they could repair even if the generator could be repaired you couldn't repair it faster than you'd freeze to death because again negative i mean this is in the summer so it's not quite that but still like you're talking fantastically cold conditions and you're living in these things that are surrounded by ice. Like as soon as the power cuts out, like I would be like 16 to 24 hours. Can you build, rebuild a base generator with your current skill set? Like, I I guess I just, just like took it at their word that like, there's no way, there's no way you could repair it. You got to kill this thing. And there's only what, what four of them left at that point. Three. Uh, They were at least there's two guys that went down plus uh, Keith David. So there's four guys left at that point. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is like, what, what point do you like? Because the other tension of the movie is, you know, Kurt Russell puts this out at a halfway point is like, if, if things get winnowed down far enough, this thing's going to stop hiding and just go into attack mode. Yeah. And like, you know, if, if you fart around trying to repair the generator, uh, you do you split up the party. That's the other thing I thought was a slight annoying point. Um, when it's in and uh, something echo he, uh, with uh, uh, Roger Ebert, he said it seems like a lot of the early goings could have been solved with an airtight buddy system, but mm-hmm. they blight like like they resort to like okay, rope everybody together, and we're going to figure out this test one way or another. To, oh, far too late, and they're way too cavalier about just going off in the base alone. And like like at one point, like I felt like Kurt Russell's McCready character should have known better, and he's like, I'm just going to go off and get drunk in my bunk. Like, what uh-huh. the fuck kind of reaction to the current events is that, man? Yeah. But I think that's just like my modern. Like in the last 30, 40 years, I think, you know, that like that behavior in the face of something crazy apocalyptic is is less tolerated. You know, yeah, I, I guess I don't I don't necessarily agree on the urgency of fixing the generator. I mean, I look at how much fire they could produce on that base <laughs> yeah. and I go a lot of fire. They could they could survive for quite a while. They mm-hmm. have a shitload of kerosene, although they tried to start the, the biggest fire the North's ever seen <laughs> the at one point. The yeah, South. <laughs> the South has ever seen. Uh, at one point, to burn this alien thing, they spent, yeah. I don't know, half their kerosene reserves for the right. entire year on that right. one thing. Right. Uh, but they had a lot of means of making fires, and I think you know, you can keep one room of that thing, maybe the storeroom warm for a good long time with the fuel they had. Well, let me ask you this. Certainly long enough to repair the generator. Because this is a question I had that I, I, I didn't know if I just, just I was taking notes and I missed a line of dialogue or what. But why did the communication, why was it such a shit show? I don't know. Because, like, I figure I maybe, and this is maybe just something they just burnt, they just bent the rules a bit. Um, I f- felt like... Uh, you your communications will work excellently at the South Pole. Yeah, you with have the shortwave radio, you're going to get you got ultimate. Yeah. You got uh, you got optimum atmospheric conditions. Mm-hmm. You could bounce shit off the moon or whatever. Like you'd have the power you needed and equipment. Like the idea that they couldn't because there's also there's not just one research base there. Right. There's like a dozen by all bunch of different countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe the the the, the, the maybe I'd buy that there's Norwegians that didn't speak English. Um, like, you know, especially the last two, but like, 
you'd find someone who speaks English at one of those research bases that you could get assistance at. Like yeah. I, that was the one thing that I, the whole time I felt like they didn't adequately explain why the radio didn't work. And I mean, shortwave radios, you could hit Australia from yeah. Antarctica. No problem. New Zealand. Like no fucking problem. Yeah. 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 And they speak English there. Yeah. Yeah. South America, New Zealand, like, like so Chile. I, there must've been some kind of interference. I think they hint at stuff, but they never really say. Huh. Uh, so okay. I was a little confused by that too. The other thing the movie I thought was shockingly bad is the mat work when they find the alien dig site. Like that's the one of the hmm. worst mat paintings and composites I've ever seen. <laughs> okay, like it wasn't nearly nearly detailed enough to to be like it. It's like again. Every other practical effect was so freaking amazing. That mat work was just terrible. Hmm. God, terrible. Needed to call in Ralph. Ralph McQuarrie. Maybe. Get him in there. Because uh, it just like uh, that That really took me out of the movie. And which is weird because I thought the initial uh, saucer, an honest to God flying saucer. Yeah. Like a 1950s era flying saucer. It was. I thought that was actually a pretty cool 1982 imagining of a stereotypical Hollywood flying saucer. Uh, I have one other question for you about the ending. Okay. If all the thing wanted to do is freeze and wait for something to find it. Yeah. Couldn't it have just run away? Like the humans can't follow it out into the tundra. So just run away. But then it freeze. might not be found again. Well, so it maybe, maybe not. But if it can, they can hibernate forever. Yeah. Eventually, I mean, just wait till wait till uh, Antarctica wanders into the equator again in right. in a couple hundred million years. Near that's what I mean. Like Pangaea two point baby, it's your time to shine. And hopefully, there will be some humans to eat. I don't know, uh, but yeah, it seems like that would have been a solution for the thing is to just run away from the base right. far enough. You know, after destroying it, after destroying the generator and killing essentially right. everyone on slow mo, right. just run out into the cold. I mean, that's what the, is trying to do is the dog right. I mean, it was just uh, trying perhaps, to escape yeah. because they were like in hunting it down and killing it mode. Right. That's a good point. Uh, I mean, I guess like if I wanted to give the movie charity, which I kind of do, is that the thing knows that it's like if, if it can hide out on this human base, that more humans will come. Yeah. But whereas if it goes out into the tundra, like who the hell knows? Like because it, it's is it aware of how many hundreds of thousands of years it was asleep? It's a good question. Because I, I don't, don't know. even know when it like when. I didn't. I don't. They didn't establish like when it landed. They don't. No. Um, and they asked the question like, how long must they this said thing that, have been out there? And they said like this: the sheets of ice were like thousands of years. Like so, it's it's, mm-hmm. it's ambiguous. But so like, and maybe it's doing the math and like, well, I could just never be found. I can never fulfill my primary purpose. But I I don't know what kind of intelligence it has. Like it's it can build a starship. Yeah. Out of a generator yeah. part. So, like, it's super smart. And its society can apparently build starships, yeah. you know, on their own because that's what it came but in. But it's almost like programmed like a scout, like, like in very much the proto-molecule out of the vein of the proto-molecule yeah. in the expanse. Like, it's it's a vanguard that's like, or or those uh, engineers from Alien, it's some kind of vanguard that's to... to spread its genetic diversity and kind of, like, terraform a planet in advance of some other invasion i guess yeah it's kind of like a what starship trooper sort of thing yeah like they they hurl yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, rocks yeah. at you right. uh, with the the seeds inside essentially. right 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 yeah or yeah there's the i think that was starship troopers yeah doing. i mean that's that's a rich vein to mine right. science fiction the yeah. whole you know invasion the body snatchers type of thing mm-hmm. um what else you got to talk about because there's still quite a bit of sean ray material 
Uh, let's let's go to his stuff so I don't step all over it. Okay. Um, I watched the common I watched the commentary track with Carpenter and Russell once, which I highly recommend for any film they did do together. And they brought up a good point of if the thing is a perfect imitation and all it wants to do is survive, would it even know if it is the thing or would it believe it is the human it was imitating? For example, does Palmer know the entire blood test it's going to be discovered as a thing, or does it only realize once the group does? I mean, I think the thing has its own consciousness as well and it's an objective yeah integrated too like i it's weird to say you know it's a perfect copy i think whatever it becomes when it takes over uh uh some kind of being like a a dog or Mm -hmm. a human it becomes a separate thing which is able to perfectly imitate a human as like like a way of cloaking but isn't isn't physically exactly that human i think like because you look at the end right where it turns into this hybrid Uh of like dog and human and and thing and i think all of those things are a part of it right but it's but it's able to manifest like a convincing perfect imitation of a human yeah yeah yeah. i feel like that's like that's its cloak like the predator's cloaking device and it only sheds it when it absolutely has to. Yeah. Like it's about to experience direct harm or, you know, or it, it, it's, it's, it's got a one-on-one situation where it can feed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, I think it's, and the other thing is like, um, you know, Wilford Brimley's character was building a spaceship when he wasn't being directly observed. So that tells me like, it knows it's not like, yeah, it wasn't sitting out there shack thinking, Oh, I'm Wilford Brimley. I got the diabetes. <laughs> right. I got to watch that. Like it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's using it as a active cloaking device. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Because uh, like every point in the movie, it only revealed itself when it was about to be harmed, destroyed, attacked, or when it was one on one with, or I guess one on four with the dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's pretty resourceful doggos, man. Chewing through chain link fence to get out. Yeah. Um, but that's the other thing. Like, sure. I, again, like I don't fully understand whether what exactly spreads the infection. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so yeah, that's that's the way I think. Uh, what do you think of John Carpenter as a director? What are some of the aspects of his filmmaking you enjoy? I mean... <laughs> so I realized over the course of, of doing my research that I've seen very few John Carpenter movies, actually. Like, I've never seen the Escape From series. Mm. Uh, I think the only John Carpenter directed movies I've seen are Halloween, this, and... Uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, mm-hmm. No, I've seen Ghost of Mars, but I thought that was trash. Hmm. Uh, so I've really only seen like three, four of his movies, and a couple of the big ones I've I've missed. So I've like seen, Carrie, I haven't seen freaking Carrie. I haven't either. I've seen I've seen uh, Escape. Yeah, uh, big, big. I've seen both uh, both the escapes. Okay, I've seen. Um, the, the the Big Trouble in Little China was a Carpenter movie because mm-hmm. I know we did a commission yeah. podcast on that. So it that's is. a Carpenter film I haven't seen. And now I've seen this and I've seen the first Halloween. I think that's all the Carpenter I've seen. So okay. I, I mean, I always admire a genre guy who goes full gonzo on the genre, but also you can tell has serious filmmaking chops. Sure. Yeah. Like I think that's very, because a lot of times you get, uh, 
you know, people that are excited about the schlocky aspects of it, but you can tell like they're weak on, you know, filming action or, you know, really grounding a place in a set or, you know, uh, letting the camera pull back and impress you with a vista or a visual or using it to like, and I, I feel like John Carpenter is, is really good at, at atmosphere. He's good at efficient characterization. Cause even though these characters are kind of thin, they're very archetypal too. Mm-hmm. So you kind of like understand without too much in the way of, of, uh, you know, exposition who these guys are. Like this guy's the sturdy older commander and this guy is the kind of Han Solo Bush pilot. And this guy is the, you know, <laughs> studious doc. And I, I thought, and that it works because this yeah. isn't a character drama, right? No. I mean, this is a this is a psychological battle between humans and aliens, right? In fact, it's it's probably helpful the more you can per, per picture yourself in as Kurt Russell, sure, yeah. um, you know, and 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 put yourself in that situation. Um, so yeah, I, that's the thing. I'm not the world's foremost John Carpenter director, but like I, I love all of the stuff that I have seen of his. Yeah. I just I'm not one of those fans who's seen everything. We I should just watch like the, the Escape films. That would be a lot of fun. Like I bet that would. Yeah, yeah. Because I think Escape from L.A. is kind of like eh, but Escape from New York is the John Carpenter film, <laughs> right. and then it's been probably 15 years since I see. I mm-hmm. in fact I might have seen that one late in high school. Hmm. I might have snuck that one in because I know one of my buddies in art class. Uh, was a huge John Carpenter fan. Yeah. And I wasn't for horror. So like, and there wasn't a, like, so I'm like, I, I, I wanted, I, I think he put me up to seeing it because I wanted to see this, but I didn't want anything that was scary because I couldn't mm-hmm. handle it. Yeah. This thing would, I would have shit my pants if I seen this as oh, like a 16 year old. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, where's Kurt Russell on the badass scale? Jim, <laughs> what is the badass scale? Uh, Cause I actually, we've been using Google docs for the entire history of bald move. And yeah. I searched my Google docs and by God, I have the original badass spreadsheet <laughs> rankings on Google sheets. Awesome. Can you explain the, uh, so this, I, I don't remember the episode, but we used to do a show, a show called blue yonder, uh, where we dive into a topic each week. And one of them was badasses. And we actually did two of those episodes, badasses and badasses part two. uh, and where we went and we took all of the, the badass movie stars and we ranked them on a three-factor scale. The three Cs. Uh, the three Cs, we called it. One is charisma, one is character, and one is champion. Uh, and those roughly translate to, like, how awesome and badass are the characters they play? Mm-hmm. How much charisma do they have as actors? And how, essentially, much of a human champ, like, how how jacked are they? Right. You know, how, how intimidating are they physically? Right. Uh, and we gave everybody that we could think of a ranking. It's, it's a scale of zero to one, one being the epitome of the quality you're talking about. Right. So max, you can get three points. Yeah. So like there's, and there's, there's only, there's only two, three C badasses and, and our list, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. Right. Um, and then you start, you know, people start losing points here and there. Cause the other thing is like, uh, some, some of the characters can work against you. Like a guy, like for example, Kurt Russell has played a couple badasses, mm-hmm. you know, like Stargate, kind of a badass, Snake Plissken, total badass, uh, McCready, everyman badass. Mm-hmm. But he's also played fucking Captain Ron. Like you, you lose badass points by clowning yourself. Sure. Like, like Schwarzenegger yeah. should probably lose more, but he's got 
I mean, if a man's the Terminator, Conan the Barbarian, <laughs> right. Dutch from Predator, Matrix. you can be you can be kindergarten cop, and no, yeah. you can you can you give can... birth to a live baby, <laughs> right. and no one's going to say shit because you yeah. you're a perfect three badass. So, I will say that I feel like maybe we're too low on Kurt Russell because Kurt Russell right now is nestled between Christian Bale and Nathan Fillion. What's his score? He is the 32nd rank of badass on our list. Uh, Does he have like a number score? He's got a zero for champion, which I think that's that's way too low. Uh, He's got a .75 for charisma, which is about right, but he's also got a .75 for character, which feels high to me. Hmm. But that's the thing, like... I, I would I would love to someday go through and revisit like like turn this into like a maybe a, 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 a series a, a full podcast a series itself, where yeah. we're like we kind of like uh, it's in, uh, you know Joanna Robinson the great debates thing that she does at the Con of Thrones yeah like just just it's, it's everyone you know here's the list it's published everyone make uh, arguments for additions to the list and everyone makes particular arguments for like. This and, and, and this is the, like this is a too low a rating because you've got this guy rated at point seven five and this guy rated at zero and this guy's at least as good as the po- like that's the kind of stuff I'd like to see. Yeah, so I, I think you could turn that into a podcast series where you take one person each week. Yeah, you know, and you you rank them. You go through their IMDb, really oh, yeah. scour it. Yeah, and you say, okay, what what do they rank in the three C's, and right. you put them on the list. The other glaring omission is we didn't do uh, women. Yeah, and like right. now it's becoming more and more of a thing. Like yeah. you know, like Scarlett Johansson would probably rank look, start look, to rank pretty high in the badass we, list. We made a lot of damn mistakes in the early Blue Yonder podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is one of them. Yeah, um, uh, 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 Carrie Fisher. I don't know if she'd make the badass, but Sigourney Weaver absolutely make the badass list. Sure, yeah, hundred uh, percent. Friggin' John Connor's mom, whose name I can't think of at the moment. Uh, Sarah, yeah, Sarah Silverman. <laughs> <laughs> no, not no Sarah, Sarah Connor. Uh, that's not a real name. Uh, no, I've, Hamilton. Linda Hamilton. Me. Yes, thank you. Absolutely, be good. It'd be a badass. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot we could go back and, and fix. I think that that not not, not be a bad idea. Not a bad Might idea. not be a bad, not idea. A bad idea. So we could do once we got it established, we could do an annual rethinking. Like right. who all had badass roles? Are we ready to let Ben Affleck into the club? <laughs> Adrian Brody was in Predators. Like, can we get? No, no, no. Sorry, he's forever barred. It would he's be the funny. one man who cannot make. See, the list I think it would be funny to have like a negative badass scale. So, like, someone like, okay, you got cast as a badass. I can't argue that you were. I'm supposed to take you as a badass and predator, but you have right. a negative five physical champion scale and a negative negative point seven five charisma so you congratulations you're the first negative one point two five badass <laughs> you were like anti- you made the list <laughs> if you and Schwarzenegger came together you'd explode uh, like at ma- matter and antimatter is there a perfect negative three badass oh Jesus somebody who's been in a badass role no because so not badass because be, the, the mere fact that they were cast as a badass would be like at least a point one on the badass scale. Would it though? Because we're only judging badasses. So like, but I think that was one of the, we have to listen to the podcast, but I think that's one of our assertions that if a movie cast you as a badass, you have to accept the fact that they are a badass. Like you can't, you can quibble with the other C's, but a badass role is a badass role. So you could only ever get a point two five. Like, like for example, the guy who plays uh, um, the wolf in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, 
Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel. He like even if, if Mr. Wolf was his only rule role, you could argue, and he, he's also charismatic. You argue he should belong. He should belong somewhere on this list. What if they get cast as a badass, but they completely fuck it up? That's what I'm saying. Adrian Brody rule. Like that's what if Polly Shore was cast as the oh, next Jesus. the next main character in the Predator? Well, you always have to have an exception to prove the rule, <laughs> right? Because yeah, and, and then the other thing is, is the movie a comedy? Because like you know, you can't take uh, Frank. Was it Drubbin? Drubbin? Uh, Drubbins from the Naked Gun series. It's oh, not a right. badass. It's a, yeah. it's a it's a farce, right? And like Predators is a farce. All right, I feel like we talked too long on this, but I'm kind of excited. I'm actually kind of excited series. about a badass resurrecting the badass. I, scale, I am though. too. Yeah, bringing it into the 21st century. Hell it yeah. was already in the 21st century, but really firmly into the 21st century. Um, Ideologically, yes. Okay, let me get back to my notes. So there, there's your thing in the badass. Let's consider some trivia. Ennio uh, uh, Morricone scored this film and he was nominated as worst original score at the Razzies that the year. Fuck just shows you how things change. I feel this is now in the highest regarded soundtracks of all time. Oh, I don't know about that, but, but it's, I mean that, that low, like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. kind of sound. Mm-hmm. It really did it for me at the end. Mm-hmm. Really fucking yeah. just drove that film where it needed to be. It's, it's harsh and, 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 and alien. And that's the thing. Like that's where, this is this is something I was struggling to think of a, a, another counterpart because it doesn't usually happen where something gets a Razzie like seen as the worst mm-hmm. and then a decade later is held up as an example of one of the best. I mean, yeah, like I can see things that were overlooked or were seen as kind of like, eh, and then we grew in appreciation for something like this is a terrible movie. This is like a two, like two and a half stars is pretty terrible in Ebert's book. Like that's a movie I wouldn't yeah. know. like if he gives a two, two and a half star. That's where, like, I'm like, well, I'm not even gonna bother watching it then. Hmm. So, like, I feel like that's that that's that's an amazing turnaround that this movie's had. Yeah. Uh, number two, the U.S. camp, Norwegian camp, or one. Okay, you already told us that. Uh, this is John Carpenter's favorite film of his own. He self-identifies right. as the, the the thing being his favorite film, and I can see why. It's it's really yeah. good. Uh, the dog thing, the one in the kennel, was created by Stan Winston, but he declined to be credit uh, to be credited so as not to take away from Rob Botton's uh, amazing work. Right, uh, which that's a pretty generous thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Blair's calculations, it would take the thing exactly three years to infect the entire world, um, which seems slow. Like I feel like. Once it made it off Antarctica and gets into like I don't know where they fly, they probably go probably go from Antarctica to like I don't know where the hell you'd go because you can go like yeah I guess you go up through South America if you're going through to, to America. Mm-hmm. I know that the uh, the U.S. military wing, which is I think the Air National Guard of New York, uh, is the one that resupplies them in the summer, and they actually operate out of the base uh, out of base in New Zealand. Uh, hmm. For the summer season, and then they fuck off back to New York during the winter. Okay, which is the summer in the northern hemisphere, of course. Um, and that's it. That's all the trivia we got. Uh, do you have any other closing comments you'd like to make on this film? Um, no, I don't think so. All right. Well, Sean, thank you for commissioning another another movie. I think you're going to get the double. I think you might get the double figures before we're done, because like three out of the next four are also Sean Ray joints. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for commissioning this podcast. I probably wouldn't have ever watch this film otherwise. Um, I think I kind of want to mention it in terms of the spooktacular that Cecily and I are going to do in October because it's a scary movie and she hasn't seen it either. 
So I'll make her watch it. Maybe make we'll watch the 2011. I kind of am very uh, hot to watch the 2011 version just from the the body horror angle. Mm-hmm. You know, see what modern special effects can do with the concept. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Thanks for uh, for for asking us to watch this movie. Thanks for your commission. Thanks for your support of Bald Move. Uh, we'll be back with another commission podcast the next time. Until then, I'm Aaron and I'm Jim. See you later.